We are going to be reading from Luke chapter 6, and we are going to read verses 27 through 36, same as last week, and we'll finish this section up this week. But I say to you who hear, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, bless those who curse you, and pray for those who spitefully use you. To him who strikes you on the one cheek, offer the other also. And from him who takes away your cloak, do not withhold your tunic either. Give to anyone, everyone who asks of you. And from him who takes away your goods, do not ask them back. And just as you want men to do to you, you also do to them likewise. But if you love those who love you, what credit is that to you? For even sinners love those who love them. And if you do good to those who do good to you, what credit is that to you? For even sinners do the same. And if you lend to those from whom you hope to receive back, what credit is that to you? For even sinners lend to sinners to receive as much back. But love your enemies. Do good and lend, hoping for nothing in return, and your reward will be great, and you will be the sons of the Most High, for He is kind to the unthankful and evil. Therefore, be merciful, just as your Father also is merciful. May the Lord bless the reading of His Word. Let's bow our heads in a word of prayer. Our Father, we come before you this morning, and Lord, we thank you for your word. And Lord, we thank you for the times that it convicts us and it challenges us. And Lord, we ask that you would help us to count the cost of what it means to be a follower of Jesus Christ. Father, I ask for your blessing on this morning, and I ask that you would help us, Lord, to walk in your light. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. We are working our way through Luke, and we came to a section last week. Uh, We've worked our way through the Beatitudes. Let me start you there first. We have two opposing sides. We have those who are blessed of God. They are waiting on a blessing that they are seeing the first first fruits of right now in their lives, and they will see the fullness of it in eternity. And then we have those that described as woe. They are under a curse. They are under a judgment of God. And that judgment, while there might be some of it that is uh, starting now, they will see the fullness of that in eternity. And I started last week on verses 27 through 31, and I gave this confession that this is the passage of Scripture that I am least excited about preaching about, and I was most worried about preaching about, and if I could have skipped any section in Luke, I would have skipped here. And there were two reasons for this. The first is it's very convicting. I don't know if you've ever looked at this section, but we do a very good job usually of explaining it away. It is very convicting. And the second is I can't honestly, or I couldn't in the past, tell you how this applied to the Beatitudes. And I think I found an answer as I was praying last week over this section. And I'm not saying I am that God has told me this. It just makes sense to me that in every place where God calls for people, and this is in the Gospels, and understand this, Christ's teaching is slightly different from the teaching after the cross. There is a a difference in clarity. Before the cross, we don't have a focus on the crucifixion that we do after. 
We don't understand it in its fullness, the way Paul will write about it in Romans and it's through the and John through the blood of Jesus Christ that sheds, you know, through his shed blood we are cleansed from all our sins. So there's a change in there. But that change has benefits on both sides. We, we understand more about the cross as we read the epistles, but we understand a different aspect of salvation as we listen to Christ describing it to us. And the way Christ always describes his salvation is a walk with him, and that's by far the most common analogy. He invites you to come and follow him. That's, his, that's the analogy Christ uses. And almost at every time he uses that analogy, right after the invitation to come, there is a passage of Scripture that says, count the, cro- count the cost. Uh, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. If he that gains his soul in this life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the kingdom's the same will gain it. And we see that, that pattern. I think I found five to seven different times in Scripture. Matthew 11, uh, 28 through 30, and different areas. Uh, Matthew 7, uh, Mark, Luke. It's just full of it. The only time I, <coughs> I didn't see it in that clarity or that fullness uh, is a little bit in John, and yet even there, there's hints of it along as he talks to Nicodemus. And he talks about uh, the ones that are lost are the ones that flee from the light, and the ones that come to the light, they're the ones that are saved. And then the Samaritan woman, as he tells her about her sin, and that she, you know brings her to an acknowledgement of sin at the very beginning, that there's something in her life that she needs a Savior for. So all of these, we see that pattern. And so when we come to this, I see the pattern here that from 27 all the way through 36, Christ is telling us what is the cost. And that cost is following the law of God to some degree. Uh, We talked about salvation. It's an absolutely free gift of God. But if we stop there, we have not really defined salvation the way Christ defines salvation. It is, an, it is a free gift of God that we can do nothing to earn or to buy, but it will literally cost us the rest of our lives as we take him as our Lord and Savior and we follow him. That is what salvation is. It is a changing of allegiance from the old to the new. It includes a forgiveness of sin. It includes a new inheritance. It includes a new relationship. We call him Papa Abba. It includes a new love. And it includes a new direction in life. If the direction in life is not there, it's because the work was not done in our heart. So, we come down to here and... Christ has just told his disciples, those that have come that are close to him, that there are two groups of people. There are those who are blessed. God is preparing a blessing for them, and every one of us says, pick me, pick me, I want to be in that group. And then those that have woe, and those that have woe are those that the judgment of God is resting, and it's just uh, Matthew 25 is a good... um, Oh, there's so many of them. I don't know. There's one where he talks about woe to Jerusalem. 
Because if, what, if the miracles that had been done in you had been done in Sodom and Gomorrah, they would have repented long ago. And woe to you, Bethsaida, and woe to you, and you go to Capernaum, and woe to you, and he goes through towns. And he tells them the judgment of God is coming. I mean, these woes are not, that's not a small phrase. We look at it, it's a three-letter word, and we think it means sad. Mm-mm. It literally comes with the connotation, I am so pressed down that I am undone. I've come apart. God has spoken in its judgment on me. So which do you want? Do you want the blessings or do you want the woe? Everybody says, I want the blessings. And immediately Christ goes in and he tells us what that's going to cost you. And he says that right at the beginning, but, you want the blessings, but, I say to you that here, Listen carefully. This is hard. This is difficult. What? Love your enemies. Love your enemies. And it's not that salvation saves us. Or it's, I'm sorry, I said that wrong. It's not that doing these works saves us, but that when you come to God and you yield your life to God and you ask for forgiveness and you say, Lord, I take you to be my Lord and Savior. On our little prayer in the back, it says, Help me to do what you show me is right. Help me not to do what you show me is wrong. It's not an option. You're turning over control of your life to the Lord. And as he comes in and he really does the work, that happens. And so Christ is careful to always present the full picture. You are coming to follow me. And this is what it's going to look like. You're going to start to love your enemies. And who is he talking about? We went back to Matthew chapter 5. He says, if, if your enemy compels you to go one mile, go two. Who was the one that could compel you in the Jewish society, in the Jewish times, to go a mile with him? Romans. Only the Romans. So he is taking their political enemy, their most hated enemy, the one that is taxing them, the one that is corrupt, the one that is persecuting them, the one that doesn't care about their God, Everything that they hate, the one that shows them that they are under the judgment of God, and that enemy, he is saying, if you're going to follow me, you're going to have to love them. You're going to have to love them. And then he proceeds to show us what that looks like. You're to do good to those who hate you. You're to uh, bless those who curse you. Pray for those who spitefully use you. To him who strikes you, on one shriek, offer him the other also. This again comes down to how do we live our life. It's, it's a life of love. Verse 30, give to everyone who asks you. I told you about that, that that is not necessarily giving money. We would simplify that and sometimes we, we make it oppressive that you must always give money to those who ask you. It's not what it says. It says give. It says give prayer, give care, give genuine help to those who are in need. You know, there are times that men are deceiving you. You think of the scammers that call on the phones. This is not saying you're to give to them just because they ask. But we can give to them in the sense of giving them the love of Christ, giving them the message of the gospel. Give to everyone who asks you. There's a heartfelt giving. 
There is some that it's not money. It's not something you can just give five cents and say, well, I gave, I'm done for the day. But there's a heartfelt care for those that have genuine needs. From him that would take away your goods, do not ask for them back. Just as you want men to do to you, do also to them. That's the the summation of this, the golden rule that we're to live by. Whatever we would desire to see in our fellow men, that's how we're to live our life. Not ignoring them, but in love toward our fellow men. Always reaching out. And with that, that kind of brings us um, to the second main re restructuring or restating of this thought. You, you almost have a, a comparison. On the one side, you have the enemies, and on the other side, it's just how are we to live? The middle is do unto others as you would have them do unto you. And on this other side, as we come back up, uh, verse 32, I believe this is what you would call a chiasm or a chiasm. It's a Greek structure of speech where it puts the, the heavy point in the middle. Uh, which is do unto others as you would have them do unto you. And then it comes back up, and it kind of gives us more, not just with our enemies, but it says this, if you love them who love you, what credit is that to you? Now, there's several parts to this that are just beautiful and, and thoughts that we need to understand. And the first one is this love. Now, I thought about this, and you know, you look it up, and you think, well, what can I say about it? And I want you to think about 1 Corinthians chapter 13. Now, when you talk about love, a lot of you naturally go there, don't you? Where do you read or where do you normally hear 1 Corinthians chapter 13, the love chapter? Where do you hear that? At marriages. You hear it when you walk into church and there's the the groom and the bride coming up and they, they say, this is love. And they talk about how we're to love one another. And yet this is the same word love that is used for our enemies. Does that hit home? It should. This is, it's not wrong to apply this to a marriage. It's certainly right that we should model the fullness of love for one another within a marriage. It's a beautiful thing. But this love that it's talking about is for our enemies. It's not just for our wife and the ones that are easy to love. We read this all the time with regard to our wives. I'm a husband, so I have to say that, with regard to my wives. Maybe you wives read it with regard to your husbands. I pray you do. But I read it with regard to my wife. (laughs) I have to say, it says love suffers long and is kind, and I think I don't have to suffer that much. I've got a good wife. And we can make jokes about it. But let's stop and bring it out of the marriage and let's put it where it belongs with our enemies. Love suffers long. Remember what Christ said to those that would ask you to go one mile? Go two. You know, we we look at that and we say, well, that's a one-to-one correlation. It's actually more than that. They could only compel you to take their burdens and go to the next mile marker on the road. It was rarely one mile. 
At the most, it was one mile. They would wait a couple feet after and then say, you, you have to help me carry. Usually, they'd meet you on the way and force you to help carry. And what did it say? It said, go to. Give extra. Show that you care. Show that you respect. Show that you love. My grandpa used to say, I thought this several points throughout the lesson today, you can give without loving, but you can't love without giving. Christ is interested in telling us that it's the heart, and the heart will work itself out. A new tree, new uh, root will produce good fruit. A good tree will produce good fruit. Love suffers long and is kind. When the Jews talked about Rome, what could they say? Anything good? I think not. Love does not envy. Love does not parade itself, is not puffed up. Love does not behave rudely. Just think about those. It doesn't seek its own. It seeks the other's benefit. When was the, you know, the last time you saw, and I mean, it's hard in our society. We don't live as close as you do in Kenya. We don't see the needs of others. But when was the last time you, you reached out to, to meet the need of an enemy? We don't even have enemies. We have people we don't care about. We've forgotten about. We're so self-isolated that we don't literally have real enemies since we left school. Um, But it seeks others' benefits. It's not seeking your own benefits, but others. It is not provoked. Think about that one. It is not provoked. What does that mean? You know, in Kenya... Again, here in America, a lot of these things kind of have slid because we're so isolated that rarely do you, do you respond. You know, you, you live in your home and you live in your own little castle and your own little kingdom. But in Kenya, where you lived around with people, I remember going to dig a well. And I said, I need to dig over there because there's water over there. I'm not going to dig here where there's no signs of water. There's a little damp spot on the surface, but I can't see any serious signs of water. I look over that area, and there is a mile and a half of trees. Heavy foliage on a plain with no trees anywhere else, and the grass is this tall. And I say, there's water over there. I know there's good water abundant water. If we can get that water, you will have all the water you need. I won't dig here. I'll dig over there. And when I did that, the young men in the society thought that I was thinking that I wasn't honoring their elders. I don't know what they were thinking. They thought they could push me into into digging where they wanted me to dig. So I was there, and one day the young men came up, and one of the young men spit on me. He just walked up to my face. He spit in my face. Not to bless me the way some of the older women did, but he spit on me to to shame me. Now that is where this verse, do not be provoked. Love is not provoked. That means it doesn't respond. It always chooses to act in a loving manner. How do you deal with it? How do you answer it? You wipe your face off. You say, I... 
I'd like to talk to you about this. He doesn't want to listen. You take the elders and you say, well, I need you to make a decision on what to do. I'm not here to fight this battle. This is yours. This is the only place I can see water. I pointed out why, but I'm not going to defend it. You have to choose. Do you want me to dig or do you not want me to dig? They weren't paying me anything. I was doing it for free. They had asked me to come. It was 30 miles away from my home, a 45, 50-minute drive every day to try to dig water. Love is not provoked. They went back. They had a meeting. They told the youth to behave themselves and show respect to their elders. They slapped them down verbally. I came back. I got an apology. They said, dig wherever you want. And I went and I dug. And at the end of our digging, we, we fell into a cave that was six feet deep full of water. Beautiful, pure, clean water. The water that we had been digging in was muddy and filthy and salty and, and contaminated by manure. And even if I had dug in there, it would have been weeks of digging. When I dug in the other one, I found an underground river of water. Love is not provoked. Rome provoked the Jews. You will carry this. You will pay this tax. You will do these things. Love means I don't respond to that. I respond with a thought-out action. How can I show this man I am different? You know how far the Jews had come from this? The Jews were known as the people that hated the world. Because every time they left the land of Israel and they came back, they brushed the dust off their feet and they, they said, you're contaminating our land with your dust. They would not touch a Gentile. Because if they did, they said, I'm unclean. I now have to go and wash. I can't even walk next to you. Instead of being loving, they were provoking those around him continues on, thinks no evil, does not rejoice in iniquity, but rejoices in truth. Boy, isn't that different? True love doesn't think evil, doesn't ascribe evil motives. Instead, it seeks truth. It seeks truth, and it rejoices in truth. And when the, when the truth shows that there is iniquity, we don't rejoice in that either. You know, when the, when the world falls into sin, when someone we love sins, it should break our heart. And when they stand for truth, it should cause us to rejoice. Finally, it sums it up. It says it bears all things. You know, this is definitely given. We see it in a marriage, don't we? When you have love particularly when you're dating and your, your emotions are, are hot and your, your fiancé is far away and you can drive six hours for a 30-minute dinner with her. And you go, that's not too far. And you jump in the car and you're gone. You enjoy your dinner, you, you hug and you kiss and you go back and you go, oh, that was so much fun. Let's do it again next week. It bears all things. But again, this isn't about your love. This is about your enemy. This is about the guy who's been persecuting you. Do you go out of your way and say, I can help with that. 
I'm willing to help with that. I'll bear that. Love bears all things. It believes all things. You know, it looks at it and it describes good motives. It hopes all things. It is not, you want to believe what's best, not what's worst. And again, this is not about, not just for the one we love in marriage, but this is for our enemies. And finally, it endures all things. Even when we are commanded to pay this tax, we are commanded to do these hard things, we are commanded, we continue to love, we continue to endure, we continue to carry, we continue to reach out, to show ourselves faithful, because we are loving our enemies. That's what it's talking about. It's not talking about love for those that are easy, for our friends that are close. And it continues on. It says, if you love those who love you, what credit is you? (laughs) Is not, um, for even sinners love those who love them. In other words, this is not different. This is not those who have been blessed of God and have had their sins forgiven, have been granted a richness of life in Christ Jesus. This is just normal to love those who love you. You know, if you're the one, every time I see you, uh, you, you think about a dog that's in a fence next to my house, and I come out often and I give him a, a biscuit because he, he growls at me and he barks at the beginning. So I start to give him a biscuit, and the other day I come out there and he goes... <laughs> he's not barking. He's begging, and I like it. And I immediately went back in and got my biscuit and came out and gave him a biscuit. And that's exactly what the world is like. It's like those that do good to me, I like them. But that's not what God calls us to do. He says that's not those who are blessed. The counting of the cost is when you're ready to reach out to your enemy in love. And he doesn't stop there. Um... Let me, let me go back to that thought before I, before I go on there. Uh, even our sinners do that. How many, times, how many times do we hear the Bible that we turn aside? Um, we turn aside from what it commands us to match closer to our desires. We hear that call to love our enemies. And instead of loving them, we, we, we say, well, you know, I'm not doing them bad. This is, uh, I, I had a thought this morning, and I just got to share it. Um, when we, you remember when we look for a wife? I was telling you about this young guy that I, had at, I met at work. And uh, since then, he's moved out. They've completely broken up with his girlfriend. They were together for five years. And... Uh, he was telling us that he asked his dad to marry his daughter. They'd been together for five years, and he had just asked the dad if he could marry his daughter. And the dad said, you're not ready yet. And he came to us, two older guys. This is a young guy, 21, 22. And he came to us, and he said, you know, I think I'm ready. I don't know why he said it. I think both of us have learned how to love ourselves enough. Two weeks later... They've broken up. They're no longer together. 
he literally moved down to Stevens Point yesterday. Two weeks later. Now, I, I look at this, and it says, love your enemies. And I think too often we take that same thought and we go, well, I need to learn how to love myself before I love my enemies. And I'm going to challenge you. That is not what God commanded. That is not what God commanded. God nowhere says, learn to love yourself. We are born loving ourselves. We are born taking care of ourselves. We are born putting ourselves first, even in front of God. It's easy. We don't even think about it. It just comes naturally. When you need something for yourself, you're ready to sacrifice to get it to fulfill any desire. And we should be taking that same love that we have naturally for ourselves and applying it to others. Instead, we say, well, I don't love myself too much, so I don't have to love them too much. And yet God gives us the standard by which we love them in 1 Corinthians 13. That's a little hard, isn't it? You don't get to say, I don't love myself that much because he just told us how we're to love. It suffers long, it is kind, it does not envy, it does not parade itself, it's not puffed up, does not behave rudely, does not seek its own, is not provoked, thinks no evil. does not rejoice in iniquity, rejoices in truth, bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things, and love never fails. It doesn't have an end. So you don't get to say that. This is what the world has taught us, and this is from Satan. This is from Satan. You look at what God commands, and God commands that we are to love, period. End of story. Love this way. End of story. We don't get to justify how we're going to do it. We don't get to delay how we're going to do it. We do it now, because that's what he's commanded us to do. Are we ever going to be perfect? No. That doesn't justify our sin. That doesn't justify our failures but it gives us the direction of travel that we're going to go. We excuse our lack of obedience in loving others by saying we are, first of all, practicing loving ourselves. This passage, as well as the parable of the Good Samaritan, tells us that there is nothing, that it has nothing to do with loving ourselves. We simply find or see someone in need, and we reach out in love, and we meet that need. And we do that not to those that we like, not to those that will return good for good, but to those who can't return good for good and those that actually hate us. The good Samaritan came to a lawyer. Was That parable was given to a lawyer who, wanting to justify himself, asked the Lord, who is my neighbor? And he said, it is the one you despise, and he helps a Jew. And he gives out of his own money and out of his own inheritance and out of his own time. And he gives until the need is met completely. Not just leaving a little bit and saying, well, you know, when he's done, you can sell him as a slave to pay for the rest. 
but he pays for his needs. He says, this is what we do. You know, and it doesn't even stop there. Love. I want to give you just one more verse before we go on from love. First Timothy 1, 5 through 7. Now the purpose of the commandment, and in this, Paul is not just talking about Timothy, but the whole of Scripture. The purpose of the commandment is love from a pure heart, from a good conscience, and from a sincere faith, which some, having strayed, have turned aside to idle talk. You know, the reality of the new birth and of Christ living in your heart is that your heart is changed and love motivates you to ch- and your actions are changed. Where do the good works come from? You're created in Christ Jesus for good works. Where do the good works come from? They come from love. If a man loves me, he will keep my commandments. Where does their obedience come from? It comes from love. Love is the motivating factor that is within us that God has put there. It is love for God, love for our neighbor, and lastly, even love for our enemy. And that's the purpose of it. So that when men will see your good works, they will glorify your Father who is in heaven. This is not good works, you know, as in great buildings that we produce. And, you know, I read uh, today, I think it's the the anniversary of Frank Wright's death, who was an architect. And that, you know, out of all of the buildings that he designed... He did most of his work between 80 and 90, something like 70% of his work between the ages of 80 and 90. And out of those, there's still hundreds that are standing. Doesn't bring any glory to God, what was said, does it? It's just a news article about a, a famous person who did a lot of good things and you know, was, very, was very gifted and in, in artistic in what he did. Brings no glory to God. So what good works bring glory to God? Those that are done in his name that cost us, that are done for love. People look at that and they go, now there's a God, Jim Elliott, who would lay down his life on the banks of a river in the middle of the Amazon because he had a love for a people. People like that, we remember 50 years later, 70 years later, we look back and we say, now that was love. And look what God did with that love. He opened up the door to missions, not only to that lost tribe, but to all of South America and even many that went out to Africa and other places. And you see Elizabeth Elliot and you see her life and it just continues on as we see the fruit of that love for God and we glorify God for what he's done. So we don't love in action, in word only, but in action, and both to those that are our enemies as well as those that we love. Luke 6.33 continues on, If you do good to those who do good to you, what credit is it to you? For even sinners do the same. Now we're going to get into two aspects just of what love means, just in case you're, you're having trouble. You know, when this was written, maybe 1 Corinthians wasn't there. He didn't have 1 Corinthians 13 to go to. So he shows us love includes doing good. And it's doing good to those who can't do good back to you. 
And it's got one other thing that's very important there. It asks us, what credit do you have when you do this? This is in both of those, in all three of these. What credit do you have? And there's there's an application there. Go back down to verse 35, and it says, if you love your enemies and do good, lending, hoping for nothing in return, the whole sum of it, your reward will be great where? In heaven. And you will be the sons of the Most High. It's not that this saves us, but this is the fruit, the evidence that God has done a work in our heart and has produced love. That love comes out, and we will have a reward. Luke 14, 12 through 14 also talks about it. Christ is talking to the Pharisees, and he said to them who invited him, when you give a dinner or a supper, do not ask your friends, your brother, your relatives, nor rich neighbors, lest they also invite you back and you be repaid. Now, this is not saying we can never ask our brother over, is it? But when we are rejoicing, when we have extra, we want to give. Don't look for the rich and the wealthy to give to. But when you give a feast, invite the poor, the maimed, the lame, and the blind. You know, this might have been in the idea of a harvest. They lived in an agricultural society where at the end of the year, in a particularly good year, the harvest is bountiful. Maybe you didn't even have enough place for all of the harvest to come in. What do you do? Start to give feasts, have some big meals, right? Invite some friends over. Let's not let it go to waste. But who do you invite? Oh, let's invite the rich. We can give a really classy presentation, and when times are hard, maybe they'll invite us back. No, invite the poor. Invite the maimed, invite the lame, invite the blind, and it says this, and you will be blessed because they cannot repay you, so you will be repaid at the resurrection of the just. God is no man's debtor. When you live righteously and you love righteously, God himself will repay you. The last one, how do you love? You love lending. Now this gets into finance. You lend to those who have a genuine need. You look at the Samaritan. It was his enemy, the Jew, who was on the ground. He paid for everything that was needed, beginning to end, and didn't even count it as a debt. He said, I will take care of it when I come back the next time. Now, maybe the man got well, and he said, I will try to repay this. Tell me who it is. Who is the guy who paid this and took care of me? I'm going to repay this. Don't give them this part of the debt. I don't know. But the, the story was given that that is how we give. And why? We're going to get into that next week. Because that's how our Father gives us. Our Father does not give us because we were friends of God, does he? But this is love, that when we were enemies of God, God first loved us. This is love, that God first loved us. Let's stand as we close in a word of prayer. Our Father, we come before you this morning, and Lord, we just ask for your blessing. 
Help us to apply these words, to understand that you have not called us to live a life of selfishness, that there are no words that will justify that when we stand in front of you. But Lord, that you have called us to lay down our lives as a living sacrifice for those that are around us. Lord, as men, in Ephesians 5, you have called us to lay down our lives for our wives. And as children of God, you have called us to lay down our lives for our enemies. Lord, to give and to do good and to lend and to turn the other cheek. And Father, we routinely seek to turn away from doing good and to justify a way to say, I can't do that right now. Father, please, help us to understand the truth of your words. And Lord, may they ring true in our hearts and in our lives. And may we understand, if we have come short, Lord, that we need your forgiveness. Father, I ask this in Jesus' name, that you would give wisdom to every person who's here. Lord, may we hear your word. We ask this in Jesus' name, amen.